0: Welcome to the Five Good Ideas podcast, where we rebroadcast some of the best sessions of Maytree's popular program. My name is Elizabeth McIsaac, president of Maytree. We're a Toronto-based organization committed to exploring solutions to poverty in Canada using a human rights approach. For each session of Five Good Ideas, we invite experts from the nonprofit or corporate sector to share five practical ideas on a key management issue facing nonprofit organizations today. In this session, originally recorded on June 15th, 2021, we asked Jeff Zito to share five good ideas to build your finance toolkit. While many of us are dialing in from across Canada and some even from beyond, I'm speaking to you from Toronto and I'd like to begin today's session by acknowledging the land where we live and work and recognizing our responsibilities and relationships where we are. As we are meeting and connecting virtually, I encourage you to acknowledge the place where you occupy and the relationships you hold. I am and Maitri is on the historical territory of the Huron-Wendat, Petun, Seneca, and most recently, the Mississaugas of the New Credit Indigenous Peoples. The territory is covered by the Dish With One Spoon Wampum Belt covenant, an agreement between the Haudenosaunee and the Ojibwe and allied nations to peaceably share and care for the lands and resources around the Great Lakes. For those of us working in the nonprofit and charitable sector organizations, and also those in for profit organizations, we all know how critically important it is to have a robust finance and accounting team that can help us understand and leverage the financial aspects of the organization. Now, I said robust, that doesn't necessarily mean a team of five or 10 or a department of 20 people. It can be One or two, it can be someone outsourced, but it's robust in the sense that it's strong and that it gives you good information. This is what helps minimize our risk, but it also supports us and our organizations in navigating and planning for the future. And so today, we're really pleased to have Jeff Zito, who is the CFO, the Chief Financial Officer at Avana Capital Corporation and Matri. He will be speaking with his five good ideas on what to have in your financial toolkit that can help you build and maintain a strong financial foundation while adding value to your organization. Jeff has over 15 years of extensive experience in leading, managing, and growing finance functions in high growth entrepreneurial businesses. His background has seen him working in mergers and acquisitions and corporate finance for a variety of institutions, serving as CFO of rapidly growing private companies, and playing a leadership role in a number of nonprofit and charitable organizations. So, in short, he knows his stuff. He's also a colleague, and so we're delighted to have Jeff join us today and share his five good ideas on what you need in your finance toolkit. It is now my pleasure to welcome Jeff. Jeff, welcome to Five Good Ideas.
1: Thank you, Liz. It's a pleasure and honor of being here today, and certainly I hope the presentation will be valuable to all of you, and you could take some of these key points back to your role in your organization. I hope to make this uh, interesting using some examples from both my non-for-profit experience and my for-profit experience, as Many of these experiences are uh, interchangeable. I- I'd like to start off with laying out essentially the-, the macro picture or the state of the union as it relates to the finance accounting function. Uh, Over the last few years, the finance accounting function has really faced both endogenous and exogenous challenges that have forced finance leaders to to be very thoughtful about their function and, and adapting new ways to either structuring or operationalizing their team to keep up these changes and add real value to their organization. Some of these forces include things like budget constraints, where in essence, doing more with less, adapting to new technologies. Every day we hear about new software applications that, in essence, make the finance professionals' life easier and more efficient. Other things that continue to be an issue is talent acquisition and retention, uh, which continues to be an acute problem these days. Now, the things that are actually impacting the organization include organizational changes and complexity, where the finance accounting function needs to be nimble and adaptable to these constant changes, among many others. You know, with that in mind, it's important to consider where you are in relation to the evolution of the finance function. I like to think the evolution of the finance function in in a stepladder sort of format, starting with the financial operations as the first step. The first step really is All about tactical and transactional work. It's ensuring invoices are booked, bills are paid, uh, payroll is paid, and recording of the entries are, are properly done. In essence, bookkeeping. So, from moving on from the first step in the evolutionary function, the next step is really the reporting and controls function. And and this step really is aligned with the organization becoming a little more complex. It's growing. So there are elements of, you know, timely reporting, management reporting elements of risk management, and some level of uh, financial analytics and planning. And the last evolutionary step in this step function is strategic finance, which in essence combines or blends strategy, operation, and finance together. It involves key elements of business performance, risk, using data as a decision support tool to in essence navigate the future. It typically involves a seat at the leadership table as an executive, where you're blending that core accounting finance expertise with strategy and operation. One caveat is that these steps don't necessarily apply to every single organization. It's perfectly fine for small and medium organizations to be in one part of the evolutionary step ladder and not in others. It really depends on the complexity of the organization, the growth, and then the the overall strategy. So it's really on a case-by-case situation. In light of these macro factors and where you are in the stepladder, a key question to ask yourself is, what should be the focus of the finance function? I guess I'll, I'll first start with what it shouldn't be. It shouldn't necessarily be a senior finance leader using a ruler, for example, to measure the lines on a bar graph that's generated by Excel. It's not a finance leader that's concerned about the font on a financial report versus the accuracy of the numbers. And it's certainly not a finance leader that has an aversion to a red pen being used to a financial document as it indicates losses. And these may sound comical and outrageous, but these are actual personal experiences I've had working with various finance leaders. And so my view of what the function should focus on is how to create a best-in-class function that can strategically and operationally support its stakeholders and really add value. So this is a good segue into how do you achieve these goals? And how do you achieve these goals really are distilled into these five good ideals I'll talk about uh, today. And the first one is around assessing and improving operational efficiency. The second one is implementing appropriate risk management. The third good idea is ensuring you have the business intelligence tools to make good decisions and plan for the future. The fourth is being thoughtful about resource planning. And this really uh, circles around hiring, retaining, and managing talent. And the fifth is integrating finance into um, the enterprise from across enterprise enterprise connection. So the first idea is around assessing and improving operational efficiencies. I like to say that accountants and finance professionals tend to have a very common DNA or character profile, good or bad, being prescriptive, fastidious, risk adverse, thinking within the box versus outside the box. Sometimes this creates a suboptimal way of doing things. Common theme, if if it's not broken, why fix it? This suboptimal perspective results in inefficient processes, which actually results in, in the strain on human capital, wastage of internet, internal resources, and, and essentially prevents the elevation of some employees to more core or important activities. So taking a critical eye to your finance functions is actually a starting point and can be quite revealing. I like to think of it as putting the mindset on as an entrepreneur where you're trying to be lean, you're trying to be resourceful, You're not afraid to fail, and you're taking a fresh look at your operations. It isn't to say that you'll get everything correct the first time, but having that mind of continuous improvement is quite critical. A perfect example, and I'll illustrate this with an experience I had. I I was working for a medical organization, and I was brought in to take a look at how they were setting up or how they were using their current finance operations. The the medical organization had two accounting systems. The accounting system was used as a purchase order system. The interesting thing was the controller who was there for many years did a fantastic job, but spent an inordinate amount of time basically pulling information in these two accounting systems, integrating them and reporting it to the management team. Notwithstanding the fact that the accounting system was also being used for a purchase order system which was right with risk, a frontline salesperson using your accounting system as a purchase order system is problematic. When I was brought in, took a critical eye at this and said, let's just merge the accounting systems into one, you don't obviously need two, and let's get a proper purchase order or PO system implemented. And this resulted in a significant reduction of time and cost and potentially error. That was the approach to adding value from an operational, efficient view or lens. This leads into the next item, which is there's a cost for everything. Sometimes there's a bias in the finance accounting world to throw more staff or resources to it with an aversion of of a costly new system. Brute force is usually the default solution to any issue without really thinking of innovative ways to improve the function. But there's a time cost to it. And, and potentially a new system or redesign of the process could make it much more efficient. The key, in my mind, is to do an analysis of how much time is currently being spent and what the return on investment is on the new sort of process relative to this. To think that there is no cost is actually incorrect. There's always a direct cost. Sometimes there's a pretty significant opportunity cost to an inefficient process, which leads to the the next point I'd like to talk about is technology as an enabler. Over the last few years, there's been a proliferation of new accounting software that is making the life of an accountant a lot easier. You now have software that can automatically bin your expenses, can help with your bank reconciliation, can integrate with your payroll, can integrate with your customer relationship management system, among others. And it's really making the finance function a lot more efficient. And there's a new buzzword in the finance world today called tech stack. And you'll hear this quite often is that nowadays, accountants and finance professionals are looking at the best and breed technology to stack upon one another, to create that efficiency, to create that scale. And so there's almost this change in the view of how technology can be an enabler for efficiency. My approach to technology is really to conduct first a diagnostic on your current operations and really try to hone in on the cost and the risk of each activity as a starting point. Once you really identify the scope of the issue, it's being resourceful. It's continuously trying to investigate or find new technologies perhaps that could solve this challenge or problem. One caveat, though, is technology is not a silver bullet, it should be an enabler, you still need good processes, you still need good talent, and you really need to understand the scope of the issue you're trying to solve. One key thing that tends to be, I would say, not really brought to the forefront on technology, because everybody gets attracted to all the features of a piece of technology you're implementing, and sometimes either disregard or don't highlight as high on the criteria list is the element of tech talent. What I mean by that, I'll illustrate with an example. At a software company I worked with, the COO president had implemented a really robust, high-fidelity accounting system. It had all the bells and whistles. It could do pretty much everything you wanted it to. When I was brought in, the controller had left, and I needed to find a new controller to use this accounting system. And I looked far and wide and went through recruitment firms and job postings to find someone who had this very unique technical skill to use this accounting system. It was practically impossible to find. Eventually I did, but we paid through the nose to hire this talent just because of the demand and supply. So choose a piece of technology where there's a level or a pool of talent, being mindful of that pool of talent, because it can really help with reducing the friction or turnover and training of using that system. The second idea is around implementing appropriate risk management. One of the important pieces in my mind of risk management is having the right controls in place, which I believe is critically important, relying on specific sort of organizational design pieces in, in an organization. So separation of roles, preparation and processing of work, and dual authentication or sign off among other things. So it really comes down to separation of roles and dual review or authentication of the process. This is very relevant and relatable in the times we live in. As many of us are working from home over the last year and a bit, there's been an an increase in cyber hacking or cybersecurity issues, specifically around phishing for finance professionals. Having that appropriate process of separation of roles, preparing and processing of an electronic funds payment or a wire transfer And having a dual authentication role in your treasury management system, for example, can really prevent payment going to a a wrong counterparty. There is a caveat to this, however, a lot of small, medium organizations have the challenge of one bookkeeper, one controller doing everything. So it's actually difficult to have a separation of roles with these respective functions. There isn't really a straightforward solution or answer to this, but I have seen and worked in organizations where the operations head, the president or the CEO plays an increasing role or oversight role in the finance function. And as a result, you can create that separation of roles and duties. And this may mean that the CEO, the president, or the ops person uh, will need to enhance their knowledge of finance, but it is a way to create that oversight. The second point is around automation. Uh, I like to think of automation as two key buckets. One is tech automation, and the second is operational automation. We talked a little bit about tech in in the other uh, idea, But technology can really help with risk management and have an extra benefit of being efficient, but will also prevent errors or create issues around risk and actually can solve a lot of those risk issues. One perfect example was a non-for-profit organization we're currently working with, and we use Pluto as a means to pay our vendors. And then it connects to our bank and built in is this dual authentication process. As opposed to running around and trying to get checks signed off using Pluto was a means to be much more efficient in our treasury management, but to have that ability of a dual sign-off control mechanism. The other piece is around operational automation, which is really templating key processes. One of the things that I did in one of my old companies I work with was really look at every single recurring finance function and creating playbooks around that finance function. So whether it's an AP process, an AR process, it's processing payroll, it, it was a way to really codify how we do things in a playbook. It really served two functions. One, it created a very prescriptive manual for employees that de-risked certain activities. And then two, played a redundancy backup. As employees turned over, you can really use these playbooks and say, hey, here's the manual of how to do things. And it was a way to train new staff quickly and efficiently. The, the third point in implementing the appropriate risk management surrounds policies. Policies, in my mind, is a way to codify key internal operations of your organization. So one of the key questions I ask all of you today is how many of you have policies around these key operational or finance activities? But so those policies could be vacation policies, an expense policy, a travel policy, a credit card policy. It's how you look at your key operational pieces and putting those down on paper. A perfect example of how having no policy can cause issues, I heard through a CFO peer network of mine. There was an executive who had a corporate credit card, which had points accumulating. This executive used these points, which was really a corporate asset, to purchase personal gifts, to take personal flights, nothing related to the business. And It was actually quite outrageous. Once he was found out and was approached by the CEO, His defense was, well, there was no credit card policy, so I'm in the good. And it raised a very tense uh, situation, despite the fact it was pretty outrageous. He kept standing by that defense. In my mind, if it's not written down, it's a guideline. It's not a policy. But By having it written down in a policy, it clearly articulates the rules of engagement, so there's no misunderstanding. And could be used as a backup in a dispute situation. The last point in risk management that I'd like to cover is stress testing. And stress testing is a pretty generic topic. But in my mind, it's looking at the downside risk of an organization. And and the way I look at the downside risk in an organization, it's really around two factors. One around probability and one around the magnitude of risk. If it's highly probable or highly likely and has high impact, And you should probably plan around mitigating or managing that risk. So this has become a very important topic over the last year and a bit around COVID. There are many organizations who are looking at their um, financial plans and looking at how much cash do they have, how much cash do they have for runway before they effectively. I've worked with a lot of entrepreneurs developing financial models and stress testing, whether Sales don't come through or expenses are higher than expected. How much runway do they have for cash or how much of an impact will it be on uh, profitability? So that's the elements of stress testing and planning around that. So idea number three is really ensuring you have appropriate business intelligent tools or call it BI tools. The first point is around marrying finance to operations and strategy. This is really truly understanding the key value drivers of your business and making sure you can measure them and act upon them. Now I'll illustrate this with an example as well. I was working for a medical organization run by a radiologist, and he had two systems: one system that tracked the patient volume and uh, all the patient details through the modalities that he used, with modalities being the different sort of x-ray equipment um, in, at his clinic and he had another system that actually tracked the accounting aspects, how much revenue was being generated by using this equipment. But he had a tough time trying to understand the revenue drivers of this business, and then also around, and the impact around resource planning for the business. So what I did was basically look at the two pieces of data that you could extract from the two different systems, and and effectively merge them together, and was able to provide the radiologist data around Revenue per modality or revenue per equipment, revenue per uh, patient, uh, volume capacity planning and the like. And so he was able to use this data and say, oh, this is an interesting sort of marriage of operation strategy and finance and allowed him to essentially resource plan better for his clinic. And, and this segues into the second point, which is around uh, key performance indicators or KPIs. In essence, the goal of a KPI is to distill your key drivers into a succinct and digestible format that will provide you a decision support tool leveraging this historical information to navigate for sort of future decisions or future strategy. It it can highlight trends, opportunities, issues, but more importantly, be an actionable item for the executive team. It also can be an interesting cross-enterprise Initiative. So you may measure finance ratios with operational ratios or some combination of the two. And that could be quite valuable as you look at the efforts across the enterprise. One charity I worked with, and they were in the, the educational space, we had KPIs around cost per learner, cost per student. It was a unique KPI because what we wanted to do is reduce the cost per student to create operating leverage, but to also think about our enhancement of the student experience. We also looked at key metrics like working capital liquidity ratios or what were our deferred obligations from the various grant funds that we would obtain. So these were some of the key ratios and key sort of metrics we would look at. The third point in ensuring you have the appropriate business intelligence tools is around forecasting. We touched a little bit about this on scenario planning for the downside, and the flip side to that is using forecasting as a critical tool in strategic planning. So that could be, however you want to call it, a budget, a rolling forecast, a long-range forecast. But the idea is really to add a lot of value in the following ways. So it provides a more detailed thought review view of how you look at the organization. It provides you a level of discipline for the team, like a budget provides a framework or a fence post to spend within. And and you can use this forecast as a way to scenario plan for not just the risk, but for opportunities. And it can actually act as a strategic framework for you to navigate the future. So perfect example, I was working with a a non-for-profit CEO. And for the first time, we had additional cash. And we were looking at this cash and saying, we should probably look at setting up an operating reserve for this excess cash. We went through a budget exercise and forecasted out what the next 12 months would be. But looking at the forecast and working with the CEO, he said, well, let's fine tune the forecast. Let's look at a very conservative situation where if you had to strip out certain revenue and costs, what would be the most conservative monthly cash burn that you would see in your forecast? so basically taking the budget and tuning it down. Once you tuned it down, looking at that conservative cash burn was really a way or a proxy for the operating reserve. So really that operating reserve was used as a rainy day situation. By looking at that tuned down forecast, we could say comfortably that the excess cash we could set up in an operating reserve that will uh, sustain us you know, between three and six months. That's how using a forecast for decision-making and adding value is, is key. The last point is around measurement. So measurement is about looking at your forecast and measuring it against actual. For example, budget versus actuals. What were the variances between what you planned and what actually happened? So it's one thing to say, here's the delta between what actually happened and what we budgeted or forecasted for. But it's getting behind those variances and saying, what caused those variances? Was it, for example, in some revenue variances, a change in volume, or is it a change in price? What happened? What caused these expenses? Was it a one time issue? Or was it a recurring issue? It's critically important to put on that analytical lens and dive into those details. It's also important, not only to look at the variances, but make it actionable. Because just having it on paper, not doing anything about it really doesn't add a ton of value. I'll illustrate another example of measurement and taking action. It was actually not too long ago, I'm the audit chair of a non-for-profit healthcare organization. We were looking at our budget versus actual numbers and the variances for expenses were quite good. They underspent what they budgeted. And they were being resourceful and Cost-effective about how they were spending their money, but this was during the first part of COVID. After some further operational discussions, realized that they were actually short on PPE and other critical resources for their organization. As a consequence, I recommended to both the general manager and the controller. I said, hey, "If you got these savings in these other buckets, redeploy those savings so that you can actually buy more PPE supplies and other really critical resources for you." The NAB was around the first or second wave of COVID. So in essence, it was taking the variant and the numbers and making it actionable for the organization, which did obtain ministry approval to basically rebin the uh, additional savings. Idea four is around being thoughtful about resource planning. And, and this really, as I mentioned, revolves around talent management and retention. There's been a war on finance accounting talent these days. No longer audit firms trying to hire the best CPA grad out of school. You're competing with high-growth tech companies, food companies, public companies. There's a lot of competition out there for talent. There's been a lot of discussion about this turnover tsunami once the pandemic ends. My other CFO peers, they're actually starting to see it. They've seen attrition rates of 20 to 30% in the last couple of months. So talent was always an issue, but it's going to continue to become more and more of an acute problem because of just scarcity. So how do you ensure you retain, hire, elevate talent specifically in the finance function? In my experience, most finance professionals come with a certain level of technical skill, and that's the baseline for a lot of uh, finance professionals. So They know their debits and credits, and they know how to read a financial statement. But I look at other things that are equally important to just that baseline of skills. I really distill it down to three elements that I look at and weighted relatively equally. One is skills, which we just talked about, and that's an obvious definition, a certain level of technical acumen or aptitude for the role. As I mentioned, it could be obviously knowing your debits and credits and the financial statements, all those sort of pieces. The second is will, and the third is attitude. So skills, will, and attitude. One of the ways I look at will is around grit and perseverance. That's how I define will. Uh, Attitude is about taking on the challenge or the work task? Is there a level of positivity? Are they open to change? Are they naysayers? And will and attitude are a little more subjective than the skills, but are just as important as the skills. I believe you can use these criteria in assessing new candidates, but also your existing uh, employees. So my old company, we used to force rank all of our employees through these three pillars, skills, wills, and attitude. It was a way to measure Um, talent and identify rising stars, but also it was a a way to support them in areas of weakness at the same time, consider replacing if they were underperforming in any of these areas. And so, so to me, skills, wills, and attitude, each one of them are very effective means to talent management and retention. The second point here in resource planning is build versus buy. There's a new world of accounting outsourcing that's evolved over the years. Organizations are looking to outsource non-core or non-value added items or areas. At the other end of the spectrum, as organizations get really complex, they're outsourcing highly specialized areas to free up resources. Accounting firms, for example, have evolved and are now de facto outsource providers. So they offer everything from Outsource bookkeeping and sort of general controllership services to specialized tax. And so some of the things to consider when you're contemplating this sort of build versus buy strategy are following. What is high or low value activity? What are some of the information sensitivities to be aware of to either outsource or keep in, in-house? What sort of specializations do you have in-house or not? And what is the cost or return on investment of outsourcing? And are there other beneficial elements to consider, means of redundancy, backup, or independence, or any other? With that being said, there's another element to build versus buy. Really a good segue into the next point is cross-training. Accountants tend to be specialists in their certain fields, and it's highly unlikely you'll find an accountant who knows everything and is a technician in everything. What I found to be very helpful and useful for the growth of my staff is taking employees through either formal or informal mentorship or job shadowing program, where in essence, it's rotating employees throughout different areas of the finance function for them to understand other elements of the finance processes. It actually creates a really interesting dynamic. I've seen employees find it very fulfilling and rewarding. It really elevates them to the next experience in their professional development and makes them a much more valuable member of the team and also allows them to appreciate other members on their team and exactly what they're doing. Finally, it also helps create that redundancy backup as well. So I do encourage that this is a a very useful tool if you're able to set this up is to really give that cross-training exposure to your employees. The last idea is around integrating finance into the general enterprise. The finance department tends to be siloed or isolated from the rest of the organization. You know, it's Sometimes finance is an afterthought. They're just another department. And either one, rightfully or wrongfully, they don't add a lot of value to the rest of the organization. Or two, they're naysayers and they don't really, they're not really part of critical initiatives or opportunities because other organizational heads have an aversion to the finance department because they're always saying no. When you think about the finance function, however, it can be a valuable role and tool to executive decision-making, using quantitative tool or other decision support tools that could really be a good sounding board for an executive to balance risk and opportunity. And integrating finance into the enterprise is really the mind shift change, the change management and communication change as you try to integrate them into the rest of the enterprise. One of the ways that i found it to be very helpful with the integration is really celebrating wins, communicating those wins on cross enterprise projects. We used to have at my old software uh, company stand up Fridays where we would have, the whole organization would stand up and talk about all the successful wins on cross enterprise projects. So that could be finance helping sales with a new commission policy or, or finance helping operations with a new system implementation. And what it did was by communicating and sharing these wins, it brought finance to the forefront. The second element or sub-idea to essentially integrating finance into the enterprise is around organizational design. So really, that is a way to look at your reporting structures and say, how do you further embed finance into the rest of the organization? Some of the organizational design layouts that I've seen, in essence, is where finance actually is. There's a dedicated finance person for every operational head. They're like mini senior finance specialists or CFOs that would report into the operating head, but also would have a direct line into the corporate CFO. And having this sort of dotted line and a direct allowed that integration of the finance mindset in the rest of the organization. And finally, there was a situation where performance review around this organizational design was actually quite helpful with respect to giving feedback both from an operational head as well as the senior finance leader. To close off on this last point, you might not have the resources or the ability to create an organizational design where this might be more applicable in a, in a larger or complex sort of environment. But the idea is still the same it's synthetically creating that environment where finance is really a critical part of the organization and adding value to everyone in the organization. In summary, the tools I outlined are really a means, not an end for the finance function. Uh, to add significant value far beyond the traditional view of making sure numbers are reconciled and things add up. It could be a driver of operational and strategic change. I hope this presentation has provided you valuable insights and perspectives that you could take back to your organization.
0: Thank you, Jeff. That was terrific. Uh, A really great overview of what for some of us sometimes feels like an opaque and very impenetrable part of the organization. So thank you so much. That was great. We already have a few questions coming in and I'm going to put two of them together because they both get at the question of software a little bit. You mentioned and referenced Pluto in your examples and somebody wants you to talk a bit more about it. But in the context of that, sometimes we hear financial software and it sounds like a complicated notion? Is it actually user-friendly? Is this something someone, and and you've had time with me, so I'm not a finance person. Is it something that someone like myself could get my head around? Building a tech stack sounds a bit like climbing Mount Everest in the words of our questioner. So is there, is this something that we can navigate that we can do? And can you tell us a bit more about Pluto?
1: Certainly. I think conceptually the, the tech stack concept is really trying to find as I mentioned, best-in-breed technologies that you can stack upon one another. Part of that is making it user-friendly. So Some of the accounting systems out there that are ubiquitous these days are like QuickBooks or Zero. You don't have to be a CPA to use QuickBooks. In fact, they have training modules online if you sign up that will just teach you and show you all the different elements and features and no different than Zero. I really want to emphasize the fact that you don't have to be a true... CPA designated account to use. These are all user-friendly software applications. Once you move up the ladder in the evolutionary scale, that's where things get a little more complicated. You have these large enterprise resource planning systems that are connected to the accounting systems. That's a whole other world, but for a lot of the medium and and even some relatively large organizations, you can find off-the-shelf applications that, as I mentioned, are user-friendly. On the Pluto side i like to consider it as a payment solutions offering. It essentially connects to your bank. It allows you to pay vendors. It allows you to pay employee expenses. And it notifies you when an expense is in the system and you log in essence and you can set up dual authentication to approve that expense to be paid and it automatically gets paid. So it really just substitutes the check writing side of the business.
0: Here's a different kind of question. Is a checkbook-style accounting system ever appropriate for a not-for-profit? How do you choose between this and a more traditional accrual accounting? Is this a function of size and scale?
1: That's a great question, actually. I always believe in an accrual basis to your record-keeping, but I would also look at a cash flow lens as well. And the reason why you want to keep two is because... Sometimes on an accrual basis, you don't really get a good sense of how much cash is in the bank or in the runway. Uh, For example, if you look at your financial forecast, a perfect example is an organization that I work with where we used to get a lot of grants up front, and that would essentially be deferred revenue. It's a liability on your balance sheet. And that's from an accrual standpoint. But from the cash standpoint, you get all that cash up front. But then the challenge is trying to forecast out your accrual financial statement in an easy way to ensure that you have enough cash in the future for your organization. And it can be done, but it isn't necessarily a one-to-one conversion. You have to go through some of the, I'm going to call it the math and the technical accounting approach to take it from an accrual to a cash. So in summary, I would say best practices to keep it in an accrual. Most charities need to provide annual return to the CRA. And a lot of that is premised on the fact it's accrual and there's many cases you need an audit, but the fact is that cash is also very important. So understanding your cash position is critically important as well.
0: You've prompted a few questions on the HR side of things. So the talent resource. So first, can you share how you might title a role that requires an individual who is able to straddle both the controller and strategic financial management roles at an organization? Is this a controller? Is this a finance manager? Is it a finance director? And how do we distinguish between these titles?
1: Sometimes there's a misnomer of titling some people uh, a director of finance or a VP finance when sometimes you don't actually have the skills or experience that really ties with that role. The way I look at the delineation between, say, for example, a VP finance or a, a controller or director of finance per, per se is, are they forward-looking or are they historical-looking? and what are the experiences around that? Is there an element of strategy and operations that gears more towards a a VP finance or a CFO? I've seen a lot of organizations where they give a title to a person that's a director of VP finance, but really they're just a glorified controller because they're not really looking at the future-oriented piece of the business and adding strategy and operations and really taking a seat at the leadership table. A a perfect example is a non-for-profit. They hired a person that was a director of finance, and, and throughout The last little bit of working with this person, they said, hey, look, this person is great, but probably more geared towards a controller side than it was certainly a true director or VP finance side, which is more forward-looking. That's how I would look at the delineation.
0: Do you have any suggestions for increasing the financial knowledge of managers who have moved up from frontline positions and may not have had management training? So I guess growing your talent.
1: Sorry, just to clarify, would that be a finance professional enhancing their knowledge, or would it be like a non-finance
0: professional? Let's maybe have some thoughts on both because it's not clarified.
1: Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Yeah, with the finance professional, I think there's a pretty straight or linear path for a lot of folks. One is if they're not designated, they've expressed interest in a designation. Going through a CPA program is a phenomenal experience and really getting those credentials behind them. I do believe also as a finance professional, doing that sort of cross-training or rotational program, if your organization is large enough, can really round out the skills of a finance professional. And then there's obviously continuing studies and all those various academic programs that you could also enlist in. And I would actually apply those to the same for non-finance professionals is really getting the basics of accounting down and then overlaying. The next level in sort of finance would be interpreting financial statements, looking at various financial ratios. Those types of elements could really help a non-finance professional understand pieces of that.
0: Right. Just a quick differentiation. What's the difference between a CPA and an LLP?
1: CPA is a designated professional. It's essentially the equivalent of the CA or CMA or the CGA, which now are merged into a CPA, Certified Public Accountant. And an LLP, in essence, is an organizational entity acronym. They're very different things. So one's a designation, one's an organizational entity.
0: I like this next question because it's a bit of uh, sort of strategic thinking in the moment where we are. I, many organizations, even those with business continuity plans, did not anticipate the roller coaster of the pandemic opening and closing, higher demands, higher costs. Do you have any words of wisdom or examples of effectively moving from the usual governance-led risk management model to a more rapid but still rigorous analysis? What are some good standard parameters for scenario planning?
1: One of the things I saw in the early part of the pandemic is once you're starting to stress test your business and you're in this looming crisis, it's probably too late. I think what you should be thinking about is always looking at some level of long-range planning. So I I worked for a public company, and we went through a five-year strategic plan every single year. That's that's a bit of an issue because (laughs) your strategy shouldn't change that much. But the idea was to actually go through this pretty rigorous exercise and plan out over the next three or five years in a fairly robust financial model and taking all those inputs from all your operational heads and layering them into a a long-range financial plan then what we did is we took this financial plan and sensitized it. We had what is the most optimistic scenario, what is the pragmatic or conservative you know, middle of the road scenario, and what's sort of our downside scenario. And then measuring that over time and saying, okay, as the environment changes, how do you sensitize your scenarios to say what course of action are you going to take? And then being mindful as well, of are some of these expenses or drivers in your business one time in nature, or call it non recurring or recurring. Over the last year, year and a half, there's been a lot of discussions around how do you look at the impact of COVID on your business? And some businesses actually have done really well. And so do you take that COVID factor out of their financial performance and say, if you had to strip out COVID, is the business actually doing all that well? And then there's other businesses that say, well, I've been hit hard by COVID. So if I normalize for COVID, would my business actually on a run rate basis be okay? So it's looking behind the lens and saying, are these elements recurring or non-recurring? And then also sensitizing your scenario planning over a longer range period and building that cadence into your overall planning process, I would say, is critical.
0: I want to go to one final question that I think um, is an interesting one on a bit of the character of the sector. Many nonprofits are debt averse sometimes to a fault for future sustainability. What tools and analysis have you found are most effective in making the case for debt or investment for a nonprofit?
1: It comes back to that cash flow forecasting plan. I'll just illustrate this with an example. One of the non I was worked for, they actually looked at our forecast and said, okay, if we could understand how much we're going to get in the grant funding and look at our expenses. So call it a traditional budget. How much cash will we need outside of that? And we actually looked at our financial situation and said, we actually have adequate cash, but let's just in a rainy day situation, let's go get a a working capital loan just in case. And we never touched that working capital loan for a a very long time until effectively COVID hit and it was like, okay, we we might want to use this. And so it's really case by case, depending on your financial situation. But I think looking at the runway over the 12 or 24 months, do you have some certainty around your funding and what are certain expenses that you can calibrate if things go different or sideways? And then if you're comfortable with that, there are plenty of financial sort of debt instruments that you could look to use as sort of additional buffer. It's case by case, because they'll go through a very specific credit analysis of your organization before they issue a line of credit or some other
0: debt. Thank you. That was a great range of questions, I think. And what a terrific presentation. Jeff, thank you so much. Thank you for listening to 5 Good Ideas with Jeff Sito. We link to the 5 Good Ideas resources and a full transcript of the session in our show notes. You can find all of our 5 Good Ideas sessions from the past seasons on the Maytree website at maytree.com forward slash five dash good dash ideas. And you can subscribe to the five good ideas podcast to continue to listen to our best sessions. See you next time.